We are moving into Malachi this morning, and uh, we have titled this four-chapter series. I, I figured it'll take us four weeks. We could probably extend it out, but we're going to take four weeks probably in Malachi. And the title of our series is, How Great Is Your God? I believe we have a, have a chronic and an acute case of small God-itis in our day and time. I believe that we have fallen prey to the mindset of the culture and that God is some lounging, napping, white-haired grandfather sitting in a rocking chair somewhere up in heaven. And that he is aloof and that he's not interested in the affairs of men and especially not the affairs of my life, your life individually. And what we will see starting today in Malachi is nothing could be further from the truth. And while that is good news, it's also very, very convicting. Hopefully very purifying to realize that we serve a great God, and I'm not saying that for general agreement, but I hope to say that in a way that prepares your heart for what you're about to hear. Not my words, but God's. And I hope and I pray, genuinely hope and pray, that when I say we're about to hear from God, that that stirs something in your heart. That we're not just doing church Sunday morning. This is not just what we do. You're going to see God is going to skewer these priests, these Israelites in love for casual worship. So I hope as we approach the very words of God this morning in Malachi chapter 1, that something is stirred in you by the power of the Holy Spirit, that something supernaturally is stirred in you for reverence, for awe, and for worship. If you would stand with us, me, you, us, as we read Malachi chapter 1, and that's 14 verses. Again, the very words of God. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eye shall see this and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, How have we despised your name? 
by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Let's pray. God, I am hesitant this morning. I know you tell me in your word to come confidently and boldly into your throne room to receive the grace that I need in my time of need. But God, this morning, this morning I am reminded of my unworthiness. I'm reminded of my sin this morning. I'm reminded of our casualness. I'm reminded of our sense of obligation like you are obligated to us. And I'm sorry. You are a great king. And we come to sit at your feet this morning and to hear your word. God, would you, by the power of your spirit, speak to us and change our hearts. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I think it's safe to say from that cursory reading of chapter 1 that God is not here to play games. God is not here in Malachi specifically to tickle your ears. God is not here to tell you things that will make you feel good so that you can go out and be happy. Verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. The book opens by being described as the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. So let's just unpack that a little bit. Let's just get a couple of words and phrases defined. First, the word oracle. It can be translated as oracle, load, or burden. So it carries with it the idea of what? Weight. 
of a heaviness. And please hear me say this again, and I hope you hear me say it again a thousand times before we die or see Jesus face to face. When God speaks, it is never light and fluffy. It is never airy or simple. We say every week that when we read these passages that we'll be covering that they are the very words of God. We said it this morning. And I want you to feel the weight of that. I'm not, let me up front, I am not trying to make you feel bad. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. But I'm wanting you to see and to feel the weight of what we're doing here. This is a weighty thing. God does not chit-chat. He doesn't talk to hear Himself talking. When God speaks, it is imperative that we understand. It's imperative that we don't yawn and dismiss it as if it was just something somebody might have said sometime that eh, may or may not apply to my life. Just take it with a grain of salt. That really kind of sets the tone for the whole book. The word oracle sets the tone for the whole book. God is speaking to His people. And they have become very unaffected by His words. They have become very disobedient to His commands. They are in a place where they have replaced His commands with what they want and what they desire. So up front, God says that this word is to be seen and heard as heavy. As weight-bearing. It makes me think of Jeremiah 20, verse 9, when Jeremiah said, If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. That's what happens when God speaks. God himself says in Jeremiah 23, 29, Is not my word like fire? declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. When we talk about the words of God, when we talk about God speaking, that's what we're talking about. Not somebody saying, God said to me, you know, you just need to go out and live your life and do you. No. God just wants me to be happy. He told me this morning as I was shaving that He just wants me to be happy. No. Woe to the one who lightly and dismissively says that God spoke to them. That's not how God speaks. His word is a hammer and a fire. The word from God is an oracle, a burden, a heavy message to be received with the full force of the creator and judge of the universe. Then we see who God is speaking to. It's an oracle to Israel. This is for God's people. This is for the nation of Israel. And that's important to know and to see. This is not for those who do not know Yahweh, the God of the descendants of Abraham. 
This word is for those descendants who can trace their ancestry back to the one God made His eternal covenant with way back before Israel was a nation. And in this time, as the nation of Israel is really a vassal state that's under the rule of the Persians, these children of God are wondering who they are and who their God is. Now just history, history, his story is history, right? Let's set this up with a little bit of history again. The first wave of returning exiles, these people who had been conquered by the Babylonians, the Babylonians had deported them from the land of Israel out to Babylon and throughout the, the kingdom of Babylon. Then the Persians overtook the Babylonians and they were in exile. Why? Why did they get conquered? Why did the Babylonians come? Because they had been disobedient and they had not kept the law of God. So God punished them. Like he said he would, time and time and time again through prophet after prophet after prophet. Stop, repent, do something different or I'm going to judge you. And he did judge them and the Babylonians came and deported the final two tribes that were left because the other ten had been deported earlier by Assyria. So the Babylonians come in and they destroy Jerusalem. They take the stuff from the temple. They deport the people. And they're in exile. And then a guy named Cyrus that God raises up comes to power and he says, anybody that wants to return to Jerusalem can return. And we saw in Ezra who returned. It was those whose hearts the Lord had stirred. And that first wave of returning exiles would have returned about a hundred years before this prophecy around the year 537 B.C. Remember, B.C. we're counting backwards, just so you don't think I'm off my nut here. The temple would be finished around 516 B.C. Because that was one of the big things that they needed to do when they got back was build the temple. took them long enough. Ezra would have brought his brood with him around 458 B.C. And Nehemiah would have come and started work on the wall around 444 B.C. And remember we saw last week that Nehemiah stayed 12 years in Jerusalem, then returned to report to King Artaxerxes and returned to find that mess that we saw in Nehemiah 13 last week. If you were here, if you weren't, listen to the podcast, the recording, whatever it is. And it was so awful. Their enemy Tobiah was living in the temple and their other enemy Sanballat his daughter had married the high priest's grandson. The Sabbath was being defiled. The temple and the priests and the Levites weren't being cared for. And the Israelites were again intermarrying with the people of the nations around them. Now we don't know exactly how long Nehemiah was gone or what year he came back precisely, but he was gone for a while and came back to the aforementioned mess. And now this message comes from the prophet Malachi. Which, whose name means my messenger. And we don't have the exact date for this prophecy, but it's estimated that this prophecy came anywhere from around 444, which is when Nehemiah started building the walls, anywhere from there to 420 B.C. So you've got a 24-ish, 24, 25-year period that this prophecy could have come in. So it's either around the time that Nehemiah had come back from visiting or maybe shortly thereafter. So Malachi in this message is speaking to or directly after the mess that we saw last week. Which is why we're looking at it now, to put it in context. 
And what does God have to say in the midst of this mess? Look at what he says first, verses 2 through 5. I've loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I've loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. I've laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we're shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. That is a pretty packed four verses right there. Okay. First thing that God wants to say to his people is, I have loved you. And that means I have and I am loving you. He's not saying I've loved you and now I don't anymore. So just stop for a minute and consider that. This oracle, this heavy burden that Malachi is bringing to the people of God starts with I've loved you. Here in the midst of the mess that was the nation and people of Israel, God's clear word and tone is love. You're like, ooh, good. Mm, well, <laughs> we'll get around to this. It's love. The first thing out of the mouth of God to Israel is, I have loved you. And it's going to be very important that we remember this going forward in this book. God is going to level charges against His people that are serious and shocking at times. He's going to be very open and honest with them and confront them in ways that seem harsh to us. But we have to be sure to always remember that it is all... All of it rooted and grounded in love. Perfect, God-breathed love. We'll see the nature of this love here, but first we need to ask, what is their reaction to this love? Note the word, but. We've talked about this before, right? But is a contrastive conjunction. So, not really what you want to hear after God says, I have loved you, right? I've loved you. But God says, I have loved you, but. And after that, but they say, how have you loved us? Anybody ever catch this tone from your kids? I've loved you. How have you loved us? You can hear the contempt in it. You can hear the, the, kind of the disgust in it. How have you loved us? Imagine hearing that from your spouse. I love you, sweetie. How have you loved me? Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh-oh. How do you think that would make you feel? Maybe you know. Seems like a gut punch to me. God says, I've loved you, but they say, how have you loved us? And you'll see this pattern several times in the book of God saying He's done something or said something, and the Israelites replying with the question of, yeah, but how? It's a direct challenge to the very words of God. And it's so devilish. It's like, did God really say? Which was not that exactly the thing that the devil said way back in the garden, to challenge the authority of God. And to bring the people of God to sin? It's the very same thing. Listen, the devil has no new tricks. He doesn't need them. They work too well. You will question 
the very words of God before we leave this building this morning. Be careful of that. Not my words. Question my words all you want. It's probably very good that you question my words. I have loved you. How have you loved us? Now watch God's answer. It's probably not what you would expect. To the question, how have you loved us? What does God say? I've loved you, says the Lord, but you say, have you loved us? And God replies this way, by blessing you and being nice to you and helping you and making sure you're happy. How have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eye shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. To which they say, Now what was our question again? Your question is, How have you loved us? God's answer to how He has loved them comes in the form of Him saying that He chose them based on no merit of their own. He says it's not... Esau, Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. That's how I've loved you. Now I'd say most of you know the story. Some of you may not. But God is referring to the birth of Isaac and Rebekah's twins, Esau and Jacob. Isaac is Abraham's son. Isaac and Rebekah are married, and she's pregnant and having twins. They are in their mother's womb. And before they were even born, God said that the elder would serve the younger. He was saying that before they were born, and Paul would mention this in Romans 9, that before they had done anything good or evil, that God chose Jacob over Esau to be the chosen vessel of his blessing. By all rights and customs, Esau, who would come out of the birth canal first, should have received the rights and privileges of the firstborn. And it was set up that way, but Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of soup, and then Jacob tricked Isaac into giving him his blessing before he died, stealing it from his brother. And then it was Jacob's sons, the twelve tribes of Israel, who would be God's chosen people, not Edom, who would be the descendants of Esau. And God says, you want to know how I have loved you? I have loved you with unmerited, gracious, electing love to the point that you did nothing at all. Nothing at all to receive it. I have loved you freely and I chose you out of all the peoples of the earth to set my love on. That is how I have loved you. You know what I'm really weary of? I'm really weary of apologizing for God's sovereignty. I'm really tired 
of begging people to believe that God elects and chooses the ones whom He chooses and elects. He is sovereign. And you are not saved because of anything that you did. And when you shake your fist at God and say, how have you loved me? He says, I chose you before the foundation of the world. That's how I've loved you. And I'm tired of apologizing for that. And not only that, but he says his love for them is shown in the fact that he hated Esau and his descendants, which I'm also tired of apologizing for. He has shown that hate for the Edomites who are Esau's descendants in that he has laid waste his hill country and left Edom's heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. I've loved you in that I have chosen you, and I have loved you in that I have hated your enemies. And I've torn their nation down. God made Edom, the land of Esau's descendants, desolate. And God said that if they say they'll rebuild it, He would tear it down again. And that their hill country was laid waste and was left to the jackals of the desert. There is no hope of Esau's folk being blessed by God. As is. God says of Edom... Esau's descendants, that they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. And some of you right now are saying, well, that's just mean. It's not fair that God would choose one and hate another. I promise you, you don't want fair. I promise you, you do not want fair. Fair sends us all to hell. Rightly and justly. You don't want fair. So God chose Israel. He set His love on them and tore down their enemies. This is how He's loved them. Now keep in mind these Jews are living under foreign rule with a temple they rebuilt with a ragtag bunch of returned exiles and living in Jerusalem behind walls that were recently rebuilt by perfumers, priests, and commoners. You think they felt blessed and highly favored? But God says they are. If for no other reason than the fact that they are His chosen people. But that's not all God's after. He says in verse 5 that this keeping Esau's folk down would have an effect on Israel and beyond. Look at verse 5 again. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord in Israel, beyond the border of Israel. God says Israel will see God calling Edom the wicked country, and they will see God being angry with Edom forever, and the result will be what? Your eyes will see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Did you catch that? God's anger and destruction of the Edomites will lead the Israelites to say that God's greatness extends beyond the border of Israel. 
Part of what was missing in the history of Israel was a spreading of the glory of God beyond their own geopolitical borders. God had set Jerusalem and the people of Israel in the middle of the known world, in a city that the psalmist called the joy of the whole earth, so that they could show God off and draw people from all over to God and His greatness. Instead, they insulated themselves from the nations and decided that God was theirs, not to be shared with others. But here, God says that His working will show even Israel that God's greatness is beyond the border of Israel. Now, more on that later. But let's look at verses 6 through 9. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Again, this is quite a loaded few verses in Scripture here. God appeals to his status as father and master of the Jewish people to help explain what the Israelites' attitude toward him should be. First, he asks that if he's their father, where is his honor? In the Ten Commandments, what did God command? Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that you're going to inhabit. So if they were to honor their earthly fathers, how much more should they honor their heavenly father? And just so we're clear, what does honor mean? Now this was tricky to me. This threw me a curveball. The Hebrew word means to love and to be a friend to. It also means to reverence and be obedient to. Let's put those together. To love and to be a friend to, to reverence and to be obedient to. It's to know someone's proper place and standing and then submit to that standing. So God is calling them to love and respect Him while befriending and obeying Him. But He doesn't stop there. He also reminds them that He is their master. He literally owns them. They belong to Him. He is their master and what is owed to Him as such. Fear. Mm. The Hebrew word is morah. And it means fear, terrible, and terror. If I'm your master, where is the terror of me? If I am your master, why are you not scared to death of displeasing me? If I'm your master, why does it not scare you to death to disobey me? It's a frightening thing to be on the judgment end of God's wrath. Ask Edom. Oh, you can't. They're gone. 
even our New Testament, so full of grace and forgiveness, praise God, says in Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's New Testament. Just in case y'all think there's a disconnect between the two, there's not. Maybe you're hearing that buzz recently. Andy Stanley says there's a disconnect between the Old and the New Testament, and we have to disjoin the New Testament from the Old Testament for it to make sense in our time. Outright heresy. Jesus said, you search the Scriptures and you think that in them you'll find life, but it is they that speak of me. There is no disjoint between the Old and the New Testament. It is still a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He is not your homeboy. He is not your buddy. He is not someone that you should treat as common or familiar. Israel had forgotten this, and they were yawning in the face of their master. Where is my honor? Where is my fear? And when you get a few more words into this particular section, you see that God is speaking specifically to the priests. Verse 6 again. Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests. And then he goes further and says that the priests despise his name. O priests who despise my name... And then they reply like they had before, and they say, How have we despised your name? And he tells them that they've despised his name in verse 7 by offering polluted food on his altar. And they strike back and say, How have we polluted you? And he sets them straight by reminding them that they, the priests, have been offering blind, lame, and sick animals in their sacrifices to God. Then God challenges them to offer these types of animals to their governor and see if he'll accept that. See if he'd be happy with second or third class meat or food when he comes to visit. Give him a potted meat sandwich and you keep the filet for yourself. See if he's pleased with that. See if your earthly authority is okay with that. And then verse 9, God actually gets a little sarcastic. Literally. It's, it's sarcasm that he gives them here. And says, and now entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Which is saying, so go ahead and ask God to help you, to be gracious to you, after you offer him your garbage. Will he show favor to any of you? It's a biting rhetorical question whose only answer is no. No, he will not show honor to you. You have dishonored him, so he will forsake I'm telling you, God's not playing here. Not at all. Verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. You're like, I thought he loved them. He does. And he says here, he wishes somebody had the gumption to just shut the doors of the temple to let the perpetual fire go out on the altar because he has no pleasure in the priest and their work and he will not accept the garbage that they are offering to him. He's saying, just stop. 
If this is what you're going to do, if this is how you're going to worship me, just stop. I'd rather you just lock the door and go home. Mm. Oh, that someone cared enough to look at what was going on and say, you know what, maybe we should just quit. That'd be better than what we're doing. Nothing versus this wrong thing. And God's saying, at this point, that would be right. Because God takes no pleasure in them, these priests, and He will not accept an offering from their hands. It's pretty clear that God is not playing church. And why not? Because there's too much at stake. Verse 11, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Again, this is not just about the nation of Israel. This is about the glory of God in the world, the whole world. Whether the Israelites do it right or not, God's name will be great among the nations. And in every place there will be right and proper offerings given to Him. For, God says, my name will be great among the nations. And he refers to himself here like he has previously in the chapter, and we haven't touched on it yet, and as he will again in the rest of the book, as the Lord of hosts. You know what that means? It means that he's the God of angel armies. He commands the hosts of heaven, meaning both angels and stars and planets and everything that's floating around up there. He commands them all. This makes me think of Jesus telling Peter to put his sword back in its sheath the night that Jesus was arrested and Peter's hacking at people. What did Jesus say? Do you not think that I can appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Now listen. As if God wasn't powerful enough in omnipotence, which is all powerfulness, As if that wasn't enough, he commands legions and hosts of angels who submit willingly to his voice and commands and joyously. He is not to be trifled with and dismissed as a mamby-pamby ho-hum grandpa in the sky. He is God Almighty commanding the host of heaven for his glory and for his good pleasure. And Israel didn't see that the earth and all that was in it, along with the very hosts of heaven, are to see God's glory and worship and obey Him. His name was to be great in all of the earth. But in the midst of His people, it was not so. Verse 12 and 13. But you profane it, my name, when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? The Israelites were profaning the name of the Lord by saying that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit and food despised. Listen to me. They hated the work that they did as priests. And they wouldn't even eat the food that they were sacrificing to God themselves. 
And this is just kind of a reiteration of what was being said in verses 7 through 11. But making it even clearer by showing that the priests themselves were disgusted by what they were doing. They did their jobs with eyes rolling and lips curled in contempt. They talked about how weary they were of doing it. And they snorted at it. I'm really tired of people saying what we do here is hard. I'm tired of it. I'm just being honest. We've got to go to church. We're going to stand up when we sing sometimes. And he's going to talk for an hour or more. And then we've got to stay and eat. And then we've got to clean up. I really got to watch what I say here because this is a hot button issue for me. If this is weariness to you, evaluate your heart. We don't do everything right here. We're not perfect. We're not the only ones who have figured out how to worship God correctly. But if it's a weariness to you, check your heart. That's all I'm going to say about that. They talked about how weary they were of doing it and they snorted at it. This is so hard. This is gross. This is stupid. What a picture of the priests of God like an hourly employee who hates their job and is plotting how to get out of it. And then he says they're offering stolen things, things taken by violence. And again, lame and sick things as they're offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Well, shall he? Verse 14 shows us the answer to this pretty quickly. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. These priests and their disgust and lazy false worship are cursed by God directly for vowing to offer a pure animal but sacrificing a blemished one. Why? For I am a great king, says the God of angel armies, and his name will be feared among the nations. You are cursed, for I am great! And you are treating me with contempt and disgust. And while you cheat, lie, and steal, and defile my altar, the nations will fear me and honor me. What's going on here in Malachi's time is, we are about to transition in a few hundred years from this old covenant of lambs and bulls and sheep, which are just a shadow of the things to come. And we're about to see the reality. When Jesus Christ walks into the temple, in Jerusalem. And then hangs outside the walls a few years later for the sins that they had committed. 
for the sins that you have committed. God says, my name, my name will be feared among the nations. I am a great king. And all the world's going to know it. What you are failing to do, priests, the world will do. It will happen, God says. God is preparing to go worldwide. And this lazy, indifferent nation of Israel is in danger of missing it all. What did Jesus say? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Oh, that you had known the time of your visitation. I would have brought you under my wings like a mother hen does her chicks, but you would not have it. So I'm going to the nations, which was always his plan. Israel's great king is thundering in their midst, reminding them of his love for them and calling them to honor, fear, and worship him appropriately. And what do you think he's doing for us today? Look at application, which will focus on those three facets, honor, fear, and worship. And we're going to put them under three F's, favor, fear, and follow. Three points of application in light of what we've read today, in light of what God has said today, favor, fear, and follow. God says, if I'm a father, where is my honor? That's favor. Let me tell you what God's looking for from you. Let me tell you what God wants for you and from you. God wants you to desire Him and see Him as beautiful in your heart. God wants you to want Him because He is the fountain of every blessing. In His presence is the fullness of joy. Nehemiah himself said what? The joy of the Lord will be your strength. God wants you to find your joy in Him. He wants to be your favorite. He wants your honor. I don't know that anything honors me more from my children than them saying they just want to spend some time with me. Let's just hang out, Dad. With me? Yeah. What do you want to do? I don't, I don't know. What do you want to do? That honors me. Now let me be clear, I'm not talking about a legalistic daily quiet time. Although if done and not legalistic is a fantastic thing. But I'm talking rather about a true heart's desire to know and be with God on an ongoing basis as the very source of joy in your life. Honor your Father by wanting to be with Him. Philippians 3, 7 through 11, Paul says this, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish 
in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That I may know Him. That's honor. That's honoring God. That everything else is crap. That's literally what it means here. The rubbish. It's dung compared to just knowing Jesus. That's what God wants from you and for you. This is about knowing Him and realizing that knowing Him intimately and personally is the single greatest thing in the universe. Who's your favorite star that you'd love to meet? What if he invited you to be or she invited you to be their intimate friend? What if they adopted you as their child and said, come live with me, be with me? Oh, i got to go to work tomorrow. You wouldn't do that to your favorite star or whatever. God the infinite, omnipotent God of the universe wants you to be with Him. He has adopted you into His family and you call Him Father. Give Him honor. And to know that we call God our Father as seen in Malachi today and in so many places in Scripture sets the stage for wanting to be with Him. Jesus made a way for us to call God our Father when He bore the punishment for our sins on the cross. His Father is now our Father. And with that barrier taken away, our sins, we have free, unhindered access to God as our Father. Jesus said it this way, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Whew. What a glorious privilege is ours as followers of Jesus to call God our Father and know him as a close, intimate ally and friend. Praise God that He is our Father. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can honor Him. But there's another side of this relationship. What was the second F? Favor, fear. This is the fear of God. Knowing the curses and consequences that come from disobedience. Knowing that sin always has consequences. And the chief consequence is grieving the heart of your father and angering your master. Now be careful. God spent his anger for our sins. How? Upon the cross. Is God angry with your sins anymore? No, but he sure was at one point. Your sin incites the anger of God. Your sin brings the natural consequences of sin upon your life. God has removed the penalty for your sins, 
but he has not removed the consequences of your sins. Sometimes he graciously does, but he is not obligated to. So where is the fear of your master? We cannot, because of our intimacy with God, forsake obeying him. That's crazy talk. If I love my father, I will want to obey him. And not just that, I will be fearful of disobeying him. And while he is our father, if we are believers, he is still our master. And he is Lord of all. And that includes us. He has purchased us. There are those who would say that Jesus can be Savior, but that He doesn't have to be Lord. Again, that is crazy talk. Jesus said plainly in Luke 6, 46-49, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Here, Jesus makes it clear that calling Him Lord is invalid if you don't do what He tells you to do. You can say Lord all you want, but you show that He is Lord by what you do. And the consequences are disastrous for the people who call Him Lord and don't do what He says to do. The ruin of that house was great. The ruin of your life will be great. And after calling the Corinthians to come out of the midst of the world and be separate, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 7.1, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. Now stop a second. Since we have these promises, since He is our Father, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the what? In the what? Fear, Fear of God. It is the fear of God, the fear of being disobedient that furthers our holiness. And that means that we fear His discipline. We fear the effects of walking contrary to His Word. Anybody ever get that look from their dad? You know what I'm talking about? That look? That look that said clearly, stop what you are doing right now or things will not go for you good very soon. Strikes fear in your heart, doesn't it? You ever been doing something and somebody walks in and catches you in the act of it? <laughs> Strikes fear into your heart, doesn't it? Nobody wants to be disciplined. But loving fathers discipline their children. And if you're not disciplined, you're not a child. And we should tremble at the thought of disobeying God and Him having to discipline us. We should tremble at the thought of disobeying the commands of this great King that we've talked about today. We should tremble at the thought of disobeying our Master. Fear your Master, knowing that He is your loving Father. Favor, fear, and finally, follow.
This is worship. Follow is about worship. It's about passionate service. It's about understanding that we serve the God who is the Lord of hosts. What will it look like to obey your Father and Master? It looks like a life that has one primary aim. And that aim is showing the world the glory that is His alone. We do this corporately as we come together and worship and grow together. And let me ask you a question. Is this a weariness to you? Do you present the best of what you have here? Physically, mentally, emotionally, financially, and spiritually? Or do we get your leftovers? Are you wore out from last night so you're uh, bored here? And, oh my word, oh I've got to get up early and go to church. Is this time together, is this life that we share together a clear priority in your life? Or do you roll your eyes and snort at the thought of being part of this group of people? Are you giving your best to these people or are they a burden to you? This is so serious. As we so clearly saw in God's words today in Malachi, God was to be esteemed and revered in the worship that was presented to Him. His priests were to minister to Him and to each other in a way that honors Him and blesses them. But you may be thinking, well, I'm not a priest. That's your job, preacher. But I and the Bible beg to differ with you. We are all of us priests according to the New Testament. 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And in the end, the song that will be sung to Jesus that we see in Revelation 5, 9, and 10 says this, And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take up the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people. For God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. He has made us priests to Him and to each other, and this life and these times that we share together are to honor and glorify Him. This is not about you. It's about Him. But that's not all. We'll finish with this. God was clear to the Israelites that theirs was not the only game in town. His goal was for the whole earth to be filled with His glory from the rising of the sun to its setting. In all places, in all times, God is to be honored, worshipped, and glorified. My life's goal, my life's ambition is to clearly show God's glory in my actions, words, thoughts, emotions, paychecks, fun, everything. Everything. People should see the beauty of my Lord through my life. They should hear His praise in my words. They should see His compassion in my actions. I should weep what He weeps over, and I should rejoice over what He rejoices over. I should hate what He hates and love what He loves. That is worship. And I should long passionately. And I would reiterate that word passionately. I should long passionately for the whole world to know it and see it. I'll conclude with the command of Jesus. 
In the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18-20, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The goal, the aim is all Nations. What is the fox that we are chasing, church? It is total world impact. The song that we saw in Revelation spoke of every tribe and language and people and nation. And we should be praying and seeking through the very life of Jesus that all nations be discipled. God has gone beyond the borders of Israel just like He said He would. And His glory in the whole world is His goal. And it should also be our goal as well. Not just in our individual lives, not just in our families, not just in this corporate body, even though, yes, in all of those, but also to the ends of the earth until the end of time. Let's pray. God, you are a great king, and I trifle with you. I live as though you owe me something. I live as though I'm the center of the universe. And if I give you anything, I am prone to give you my leftovers. God, would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, convict me of my sin, convict us of our sins. And reveal yourself to us again as a great king, the great king. Reveal yourself again as our father and our master, as our freely choosing and electing sovereign God. And God, may we honor you and fear you and follow you into all the world so that your name, Jesus, is proclaimed here in this earth above all names. One day it will happen in heaven. But may it be our passion, our single wholehearted passion in this life to show you as great. Holy Spirit, have your way. Do your work to the praise of Jesus. And we ask it in his name. And amen. You stand and receive benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. You are dismissed. Stay and eat with us if you can.